Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 152, the topic, the plenary manifestation of love. Call this casual Sunday. Don't be confused. I don't have my suit and tie today. This is casual Sunday. My version of Isaiah 20. Never mind. The plenary manifestation of love. Hebrews chapter 6, so far we have this from 6, 1 through 10. Here's the translation. Therefore, leaving the merely anticipative word about the Messiah, let's be brought to completion, not again laying down a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, instructions about ritual washings, the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and judgment in the age to come. And we'll do this if indeed God allows. For it would be impossible in the case of a category of persons who had once been enlightened, who had experienced the heavenly gift, and who had become companions of the Holy Spirit, who had tasted the good word of God and the dynamics of the age to come, and then, having fallen away, to renew them to repentance while they're crucifying to themselves the Son of God and exposing him to public shame. For ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it brings forth thorn plants and briars, it is useless, about to be cursed, and will be burned at the end. Now even though we're speaking in this manner, beloved, we're completely persuaded, in your case, of the better things, that is, the things that belong to salvation itself. And here's our verse, the focus of our today's study. And God is not unjust to forget your work and the love you showed for his name when you serve the saints, and you're still serving them. Gar in Hebrews, G-A-R, Gar in Hebrews 6.10 expresses continuation, just like the word duh, the conjunction duh, D-E, or chi. And it can mean indeed or certainly to be sure and other things. God is not unjust to forget or to overlook, and you'll see those Greek words in the printed form of this message. Your work, that's to ergu, that is the proof that they have been operative in the free state of soteria. God knows when we are operative in the free state of soteria with its dynamic state of love in two dimensions. And that's what we're going to speak about today. And the general gist of today's message will be around the subject of the plenary manifestation of love. In the free state of soteria, one is in the dynamic state of love in two dimensions, vertical and horizontal dimensions. The first, or the vertical, of the two dimensions of the dynamic state of love is described in the Shema Yisrael. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 reads this way. Be attentive, Israel. The Hebrew is Shema Yisrael. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. An alternate translation to that would read this way. Yahweh is our God, 
Yahweh alone. Verse 5 then goes in to express the two dimensions of the dynamic state of love. Love Yahweh, your God, with your whole heart and your whole soul and with all of your power. Now the second, or what I call the horizontal or lateral dimension of love, is found in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And your hand shall not avenge you, and you will not bear a grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. I am Yahweh. Notice that in both cases, the name of God is used. Love for the name of God, therefore, as it's put in Hebrews 6.10, is love for Yahweh, the one whose uncreated existence and eternal essence are the same. In Leviticus 19.18, God actually, we could say, signs his name to this commandment. Only God, only Yahweh, can in any way revise or amplify this commandment. And Yahweh did amplify this commandment for Yahweh Yeshua, Jesus, who is Yahweh, said, love your enemies. Matthew 5, 43 and 44, in fact, reads this way. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yahweh Yeshua amplified the horizontal dimension of love to include one's enemies. His commandments in the Sermon on the Mount are what we would call counterintuitive. They're against what we would naturally assume to be reasonable commands, not because they're unreasonable, but because they're supra-reasonable in the Lagos, the Word of God, and in the Holy Spirit. So we might ask, where in the scripture does it say to hate your enemy? Jesus said, you've heard that it's been said that you would hate your enemy. Well, it doesn't say that. Leviticus 19.18 neither adds that nor implies it. Now, listen carefully. Jesus did not say that the scripture says hate your enemy. He said that his listeners have heard it said, you shall hate your enemies. This never came from the lips of Yahweh or the prophets in whom he spoke to the fathers. It was evidently an inference made by the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus refuted this inference and presented the exact opposite command. Now, this may have struck a nerve in his audience because according to John 4.9, for example... Judeans at the time didn't associate with Samaritans. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans and probably vice versa. And there was, of course, a natural animosity of Judeans for their Roman occupiers. In the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10.29 and following, Jesus made the one who loved his neighbor a Samaritan. He also identified in a positive way with the Samaritans. When asked by his opponents, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? In John 8, 48, Jesus replied, I don't have a demon. In John 8, 49, 
He did not deny the charge, as we could call it, that he was a Samaritan. Why? Because, in fact, he identified positively with the Samaritans, as he did with all people groups, as he does with all people groups today. Because, in fact, he is not only the Messiah of Israel, he is the Savior of the world in John 4.42. Just as the people of the Samaritan city of Sychar acknowledged in John 4.5 and in John 4.42. Now, the most famous speech given during the Cold War, as we call it, was John F. Kennedy's speech in Berlin. Just as John F. Kennedy showed his solidarity with the people of Berlin by saying, Ich bin ein Berliner. I am also a citizen of Berlin. In a speech in June of 1963 during the Cold War, so Jesus expressed solidarity with the people of Samaria by not denying that he was a Samaritan and by making a Samaritan the good neighbor in the famous parable, a parable in which he himself could be interpreted as the Samaritan, Luke 10, 29 to 37. Jesus himself fulfilled the mandate to love one's enemies and to pray for those who persecute us by praying himself from the cross for his crucifiers, even praying for their forgiveness. The pre-motion of Jesus acted also in Stephen, who while being stoned to death, prayed for his murderers, saying, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Acts 7.60 Stephen made this petition in his dying moments while seeing Jesus, the Son of Man, at God's right hand as heaven was open before him. Acts 7.56 And that's the point. All real loves comes from a pre-motion of Jesus, the Son of Man. It comes from seeing Jesus and from conformity to him, especially in the moments of his dying in Philippians 3.10, when he prayed, Father, forgive them. It is intriguing that Paul said that he wanted to be conformed into Jesus Christ's image, into the image of his dying Meaning, Paul wanted to be as Jesus is and as Jesus was in his dying moments in which he prayed for his persecutors and demonstrated love for his enemies. Philippians 3.10. Think about that. Meditate on that. It might take your mind for a two or three hour trip. And it won't be a bad trip either. And so, Father, forgive them, Jesus prayed from the cross. He commands his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. We often miss that last part, as I have loved you, in John 13, 34. The only way that we love one another as Jesus loved us is if our love comes from a pre-motion of Jesus in us. 
This is what Paul meant when he said that the love of Christ controls me in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He came to be a lover of all human beings because he was pre-moved by the love of Christ, the one who died for all. This pre-motion is ever alive and energetic in the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. Now Romans 5.5, 5, speaking of that verse, that verse in, particularly, in particular speaks of God's gift of his own love. Get used to that phrase, God's gift of his own love. The phrase, the love of God, which is hey agape tu theu in the Greek, is a, arguably at least what we call a plenary genitive, a plenary, and that's where I have the word for our title, genitive. Now we already know of the subjective genitive, we already know of the objective genitive, but when you add these two together, you get a plenary genitive. So the phrase, which you'll see in print in the Greek, and in transliteration in the Greek, hey agape tu theu, let me just write it up here because it's a very key phrase for us today. Hey agape, the article H-E, and then agape, A-G-A-P-A-P-E, agape. Hey agape, then tu theu. Tu theu, the love of God. The love of God. Hey, agape tu theu. It's a plenary genitive phrase. Plenary genitive combines both the subjective genitive, which would be the love that God has, or the love that he expresses for us and for others. And in combination with that, the plenary genitive includes the objective genitive, which would be the love that we have for God, our return love, what some might call the reciprocal love that we have for God. The plenary genitive sometimes, well, it always does this. The plenary genitive combines both the objective and subjective genitives. And so Romans 5.5 5 means that the love of God for us and for others and our love for God that's commanded in the Shema Israel and for others that's commanded in Leviticus 19.18 is all part of God's gift of his own love, which is also the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is also the heavenly gift spoken of in Hebrews 6.5. If you take the list of things that happen in Hebrews 6.4-6, you have a wonderful compendium of benefits of salvation. And... If you do that separate from the warning that's there, you can have a tremendous soteriology right at your fingertips. God's gift of his own love is what is operative in the free state of soteria, which we've defined in previous messages. Both the vertical dimension and the lateral dimension, otherwise known as the horizontal dimension of love, are comprehended in the same plenary genitive phrase, hey agape tu theu. It's a phrase that also appears in 1 John 2, 5. So there's a Paul-John connection here, which says, But whoever keeps his word, truly and really in him, 
the love of God is completed. There's another word that's a key word in our study. The word is teleao, T-E-L-E-I-O-O, teleao, and that becomes a word group that is riddled throughout Hebrews, including Hebrews 2.10, and 12.23. Completion is the idea. In the person who keeps his word, that's somebody who prioritizes the word of God, not other things in life. He who keeps his word, that is, retains it as a priority in life, in him or in her, the love of God is completed, truly completed. Now, for love to be completed, and here's the central thesis of today's message, for love to be completed means that it is demonstrated or manifested in both of its dynamic dimensions. Total love for God and unconditional and forgiving love for all of humankind, including one's enemies. This completion in love is not unrelated to the completion to which we are called and to which the teaching pastor exhorts his readers to be carried in Hebrews 6.1. Christian perfection is completion in love. As such, it's conformity to Jesus. Practical salvation is operation in the dynamic state of love, in its two dimensions, and in its plenary manifestation. For real love to be completed in us means that love has its plenary or full manifestation. For real love to be completed in us, again, means that love has its plenary manifestation in and through us as it did with Jesus. Real love is love in which God is the first mover, Christ is the mediator, and the Spirit is the muscle. I'm going to say that again. Real love is love in which God is the first mover, Christ is the mediator, and the Spirit is the muscle. It's all a gift. The gift of God's own love. Freedom and love are one in the free state of soteria. For as Galatians 5.13 says, don't use your freedom as a base of operations for the flesh, that is, to indulge its passions and its lusts, even its passion to be righteous and to virtue signal, but by love be serving one another. And as Galatians 6.10 says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good. And that's that word to agathon, which is so prevalent also in Hebrews in its comparative forms. So as Galatians 6.10 says, so then as we have opportunity to do good, that is to become agents of God's beneficence and benevolence to everyone. Why? Because God is going to be and is benevolent and philanthropic to everyone, bringing salvation to all. So as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those belonging to the house of faith. 
And that's our opportunity. Where is our opportunity? Well, we look for opportunities. No, our opportunity is now, in this age. Kairos is the word used there. During this whole age, we have opportunity to do good. We have opportunity to extend mercy, to extend compassion, to demonstrate mercy. And that brings us around again to Hebrews 6.10. Here's the verse. And God is not unjust to forget your work and the love you showed for his name. Notice that. The love you showed for his name when you served the saints. Imagine that. Serving the saints is showing love for God's name. And you're still serving them, he says. Before speaking of the love that the Hebrews showed for God's name in Hebrews 6.10, they were called beloved in Hebrews 6.9, or loved, meaning loved of God. This implies that they love God and serve the saints in love because they are first loved by God. In John's extensive anatomy of love in Alpha John, 1 John, a prime example and a prime principle juts up like a mountain peak in a range of mountains, a prominent peak. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. Here, the pre-motion of God's love is clearly evident. In 1 John, 1 John 3.16, By this we know real love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought also to lay our lives down for his siblings, the brethren, his siblings, which are our siblings. The ought here in ought also to lay our lives down, is not just a moral imperative. It's the reasonable effect of the pre-motion of Jesus' self-sacrificial love in us, which becomes self-sacrificial love in and through us. Also in the Johannine anatomy of love is this exhortation. Children, let's love, not only in word or in talk, but in deed and in reality. This is a searing rebuke in a time of virtue signaling, our own time, in which people are under pressure to say or to wear emblems or make exhibitions, symbolic or otherwise, that they care. There was a whole campaign on a TV show that says CBS cares, and they had to get on and signal that because Every corporation now seems to have to make some kind of virtue signal for fear that they will be somehow renounced as haters of one thing or another. And so people have to show or signal that they are tolerant or supportive of all people and that they are the opposite. And you must know I'm the opposite of a racist or a xenophobe, or a transphobe, or an Islamophobe. I want to show you this. They put conspicuous signs in front of their homes which announce that hate has no home here, signaling their virtue to every passerby who wants to throw up a little bit in their mouth, while they believe that certain categories of their fellow countrymen at the same time are worthy of censure, ostracism, and even death. Some even profess to be good while they are haters of the good. It is one thing to virtue signal. 
and quite another to operate in virtue love, the love called agape, love in action and in reality. For love to be in action and in reality, it must be pre-moved by God, mediated through Jesus, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, who pours that love out in our hearts and throughout our hearts, enabling us to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our power, doing the good toward others that the Bible commands is nothing short of being agents of God's own beneficence and benevolence to humankind. As genuine love is linked to action or deeds in 1 John 3.18, so it is linked to work and service of the saints in Hebrews 6.10. John the old man, he's called Presbuteros or Presbuteros in 1 John, also called Alpha John, more correctly, in Alpha John, the old man addresses the hypocrisy of those who profess to love God and make signals about that, singing, Oh, How I Love Jesus, etc. And there's nothing wrong with that song. It's a beautiful song, but it also can be a virtue signal while you're secretly angry with, holding a grudge against, hating, jealousy, or envious of the brother or sister singing next to you. And so... John addresses the hypocrisy of those who profess to love God while they despise or reject or dismiss their brother or even their fellow human being as being insignificant. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's what John wrote, the old man, the presbyteros, John the elder. And then he goes on to say, for how can the one who doesn't love his brother whom he sees Love God whom he has not seen. Good rationale, good logic. And in 421 of 1 John, Alpha John, he says, and this is the commandment that we have from him, that those who love God must love their brother also. This is indeed the commandment that we have from Jesus, who is both God and our brother. Let me say that again. This is indeed the commandment that we have from Jesus, who is both God and our brother. If you don't love your brother, you don't love your elder brother, who also is God, who also is our Lord, Jesus Christ. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one entity. Same sense is found in 1 John 5, 1 and 2. So, what did John do here? John, the elder, confronted virtue signaling in the first century. It ain't no new thing. There's nothing new under the sun, the natural light of the sun. Paul dealt with the problem of virtue signaling. John dealt with the problem of virtue signaling in the first century. Because there were those who said, I love God signaling their virtue or their piety, while at the same time they despised, judged, slandered, gossiped about, or were indifferent to their brothers in Christ. Paul dealt with the problem of virtue signaling through one's preference of food, whether one abstained from certain foods that were verboten by the Mosaic Law, or whether one blatantly showcased his so-called liberty from such prohibitions. 
Both were virtue signals. Into that divisiveness perpetuated by virtue signaling, Paul wrote this, if because of food at all, you are causing your brother pain, you are no longer walking according to love, over mere food preferences, do not devastate your brother for whom Messiah died. Let's update that, Romans 14, 15, and say, through virtue signaling, stop devastating your brother. To the question asked by a teacher of the law, Rabbi, what's the most important commandment of the Torah? This was asked of Jesus, as usual, to entrap him. Matthew twenty two thirty six, But to that question, what's the most important commandment of the Torah, Jesus replied this way, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But listen to what he said after that. And as he continues, he said, This is the greatest and foremost commandment, and a second is like it, meaning there's a second that's equally important and in total solidarity with that commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus equated the second commandment with the first in terms of importance. And this says that the two hang together and that upon them the whole of the law and the prophets depend. Love for God and love for one's neighbor constitute what? The plenary manifestation of love. Love in its two dimensions and the dynamic state of love in the free state of soteria. Do you live there? You can be a citizen there if you want. And one's neighbor includes one's enemy on top of that. Because of the equal importance and inseparability of these two commandments, love for the name of God and the service of the saints are of a piece, as people like to say today. That means they are in inseparable solidarity. Love is the core of God. Love includes the triune God's passionate philanthropy, beneficence, and benevolence for all the human race and for individuals in it, all individuals in it. If God's love is demonstrated by his benevolence, then our love from a pre-motion in God must also involve deeds of benevolence like service to the saints, like forgiveness when we're wronged, perseverance in making prayerful petition for all saints, Ephesians 6.18, is an example of love for God's name by serving the saints. Perseverance is required because prayer for the saints is needed in the spiritual fight against invisible principalities and powers, some of whom are making slanderous accusations against those very people for whom you are praying. Spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places were pitted against them, standing against them, praying and holding above all the shield of faith which is able to extinguish all the fiery scud missiles of the wicked one. So keep that shield of faith up above all. Praying in the Holy Spirit and keeping ourselves in the love of God are back-to-back -back in Jude 1.20-21. Back-to-back mandates. Praying for those who slander and persecute us is also an exercise of love. 
Loving our enemies and praying for our persecutors are also back-to-back in Jesus' command. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus' love for his enemies was manifested in prayer for them from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Luke 23, 34. We've seen in the writings of Pseudo-Dionysius that the name of God is associated with essential goodness and as such with beneficence and benevolence and that by his very existence as the essential good, he extends his goodness into all things. Our prayers are petitions for God to extend his goodness into the lives and situations of our siblings, our fellow believers, and our fellow human beings, even if they are our avowed enemies. In 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, the apostle urges Christians everywhere that, quote, petitions, prayers, intercessions, and expressions of thanks be made for all human beings, including kings and all those who are in positions of authority, so that we may lead tranquil and quiet lives in all goodness and dignity. A hated governor was recently all over the place in the news yesterday. I tuned in three or four times, and every time they're talking about accusations against him. Certainly, political rivals and people of a different political party are rejoicing at his so-called fall. You know what I prayed for? The Holy Spirit motivated me to pray for this man that God would extend his goodness into his life. If that goodness meant conversion, if that goodness meant forgiveness, if that goodness, whatever that goodness meant from the God of all goodness and the God of all grace, that's what I was urged to pray for in the Holy Spirit. It's a big difference. And it's it's a tremendous attitude of soul when we pray in love. When you're praying in love, it's hard to be anxious. It's hard to be aiming your arrows of disdain and hatred at scapegoats because you're a coward and a weakling in life. It is only cowards and weaklings who make scapegoats of political leaders and try to heap all the wrongs of society upon them. That's what's going to happen in the ultimate prejudice when that same hatred turns toward Christians and they're viewed as enemies of humanity as they were in the days of Rome. Now, so, Christians everywhere, pray for those who are in authority. And so, we may lead quiet, tranquil lives in all godliness and dignity. What? Godliness and dignity. This is a far cry from the anxiety in which people make scapegoats out of their leaders and constantly vilify and curse them. We can even pray for the haters of God. Yes, I said that. We can even pray for the haters of God, that God would extend his goodness to them in the form of a spiritual conversion in which the love of God is poured out into their hearts. Prayer for our enemies is willing for them the good of God, whose name means goodness. We don't win when our human enemies are defeated or destroyed. We win when our human enemies are converted by the God whose name is good and whose core is love. Conversion occurs by the just and mysterious law of the cross, which converts the evils of the human race, 
and evil humans into the supreme good as he did with Saul of Tarsus as a prime example, an avowed and dedicated enemy of the church and persistent persecutor of Jesus of Nazareth, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was there approving of Stephen's murder when Stephen prayed, don't charge them with this sin. Saul of Tarsus, who heartily approved of Stephen's execution, later spoke to the Lord of Stephen as, quote, Stephen, your martyr, in Acts 22.20. Stephen's prayer for Saul was certainly answered by the God who does exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or think. The Lord not only did not charge Saul of Tarsus with the willful homicide of his witness, he also converted the evils of Saul into the supreme good in which Paul's life and livingness became Christ in Philippians 1.21. The writer uses two verbal tenses to describe his reader's service to the saints. We're still in Hebrews 6.10. The first is the aorist tense of diakoneo, you served in the past tense. The second is the present ongoing tense of the same verb, you're still serving, diakoneo. The past tense of their service to the saints under a particular time of duress and persecution followed their original enlightenment of the gospel about his son. The gospel of God about his son enlightened them. They meant immediately from that enlightenment to a time of duress and persecution. The PT actually encourages them to recall this time in which they serve the saints. So we turn quickly, we fly to Hebrews 10:32 to 34 and we read this. But remember the early days in which upon being enlightened you endured a difficult struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were taunted and publicly shamed and afflicted. At other times you became companions of those who were so treated. You had compassion on those who were imprisoned that is, imprisoned for their faith and confession of Jesus as the Son of God. And you accepted the confiscation of your property with joy, knowing you have an enduring possession. Of course, an enduring possession in future world. This was a recollection of their past service to the saints, an indication of their operation in the free state of Soteria and the dynamic state of love. The PT notes that they're still serving the saints in ways that are specified, for example, in Hebrews 13, 1 to 3, and 13, 15 to 18. Some translations of Hebrews 6, 10 have labor of love, to kaputes agapes, as we will, you'll see that also in print in the Greek. Instead of just love, some translations have your labor of love. This would be an echo of the phrase used by Paul in one of his earliest epistles. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3, he commends the saints in Thessalonica who had also endured a spate of persecutions, according to 1 Thessalonians 1.6. He commends them for their kaputes agapes. To kaputes agapes, your labor of love. In either rendering, the idea is the same. Both the Thessalonians and the Hebrews, as they're called, were operative in the dynamic state of love. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3, it is the labor of love in Jesus Christ, specifically. 
And in Hebrews 6.10, it's their work and the love they showed for God's name. That they showed, and that's the aorist middle of endeikonomi, E-N-D-E-I-K-N-U-M-I. You'll see it in print. I don't have time to write it up here. I have seven pages of intense doctrine to transmit in this message. Endeikonomi. This love means that they demonstrated this love for God's name, for God's name in observable actions, lateral actions. They didn't just verbally or symbolically virtue signal. They acted through the first mover, the only mediator, and the divine muscle of the Holy Spirit. Capital M for muscle of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is divine muscle. And they did so in tangible service to the saints. The saints, how about that word? Tois hagios. I will, I am tempted to write that up here because it's a word so often used in the Old and New Testament. And it is the plural of saints, which looks like this in the Greek. T-O-I-S, tois, capital, or rather plural. And then hagios, H-A-G. I-O-I-S, Hagios, Hagios, the saints. When the saints go marching in, now when the saints, never mind, I don't want to sing, but they showed their love for God's name by their service to the saints. Who are the saints? Well, the saints is a descriptive or a descriptor, we'll call it, for the people of God in the Septuagint of Psalm 15.3, for example, English translation 16.3, there the saints are people in whom, quote, God has magnified his pleasure. They are people in whom God has magnified his pleasure. As we would say it today, people in whom Christ is magnified. In a practical sense, then, the saints are people in whom Christ is magnified, Philippians 1.20. In both the Old Greek and the Theodosian version, of Daniel 7.22 and Daniel 7.27, the saints are said to be, quote, of the Most High, just as Melchizedek is said to be a priest to God Most High, Genesis 14.18, Hebrews 7.1. In Daniel, it is to, quote, the saints and to those who are called, quote, the people of the saints of the Most High, close quote, to whom the everlasting and indestructible kingdom of the Son of Man is to be given. The saints is tois hagios again. The connotation of the word saints is sanctification, a key word in Hebrews, as it is a key word in Romans 6 through 8, as justification is a key word in Romans 1 through 5. The saints... The connotation of the word saints, then, is sanctification. It refers to people who have been sanctified by God and set apart from the reign of sin to the reign of the Son. Saints is generally descriptive of Christians in Acts 9.13, where Ananias of Damascus speaks to the Lord of, quote, your saints in Jerusalem, close quote. In Acts 9.32 and Acts 9.41, Luke writes of the saints in Lydda, L-Y-D-D-A, speaking of believers in that region. Paul spoke of throwing many saints, 
into prison while he was still a persecutor of the Messianic community, Acts 26.10. Saints was his customary greeting to the addressees of his epistles. He also wrote of the Spirit's intercession for the saints in Romans 8.27, and of service to the saints by sharing with them in their needs, Romans 12.13, where we have a likeness to Hebrews 6.10. He spoke of serving the poor of the saints in Jerusalem with a financial gift, Romans 15.25 and 26, Romans 15.31. Paul used the word saints to describe Christians or believers in Christ at least 36 times in his Pauline corpus. The word is used similarly by Jude in 1.3 and 14 times in the Apocalypse of John called Revelation. Hebrews 6.10 is speaking of the service of the saints by the saints, which is an exhibition of love for God's name. Saints is almost a common moniker for Christians in Luke, in Paul, in Revelation, and in Hebrews. The term stresses the idea, once again, of sanctification. The saints are people who are sanctified by Jesus and who are in solidarity with their sanctifier, Hebrews 2.11. you got to stay awake for this message, don't you? Saints are people who are in Christ and who have the privilege of being a being, a privilege of a being and a life and a livingness outside of themselves in Christ. When the PT, the teaching pastor who wrote Hebrews, says that his readers, quote, have served the saints and still serve them, he is saying that they are serving people who have shown themselves to be witnesses of Jesus and who in many cases have suffered for their testimony and witness. Saints is a word to be preferred over believers, which you don't often see in the Greek New Testament. Saints is a word, therefore, to be preferred over believers. Why? Because believers stresses the activity of people, while saints stresses the activity of God in sanctifying people by his grace. Radical grace is indicated then by the term saints. And so in closing, I'd like to say this. The work that God is not unjust to forget or to overlook is faith working by love. In Galatians 5.6, in service to the saints. In Hebrews 6.10, in Galatians 5.13, in Galatians 6.10. The Messianic community called the Church of Jesus Christ, is only effective in its mission if within that community there is the ongoing work of loving service. As Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, that you love one another, will everyone know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So in our two jubilee years... We're not restricted in our service to one another in love in the free state of soteria. Father, rivet these truths into our soul, into our hearts, into our being, so that in deed and in fact and in reality and in deed and in truth, we may love, we may love you, we may love one another, we may love our enemies. What an impossible task it is, but thanks to your radical grace, 
It is now an impossible possibility. In Jesus' name, amen.